Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of violence and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On the morning of July 10th, 1923, Marguerite Fahami waited anxiously in an office at the Bow Street Police Station. She had been up all night, but she remained alert. She was too agitated to let fatigue set in. Outside, a thunderstorm raged, one of the worst London had seen in years. Marguerite jumped every time a clap of thunder pierced the silence. She had the urge to run, but there was nowhere to go. All she could do was wait. At around 7 a.m., a man walked briskly into the office. He introduced himself as Detective Inspector Alfred Gross. Marguerite was relieved to hear that he spoke French, for she never had learned to speak English. He offered her a cup of coffee, and she gratefully accepted. But before she could take a sip, the detective arrested her for murder. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives closed the case. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free exclusively on Spotify. This is our second episode on Marguerite Alibert. Last week, we talked about how Marguerite lived a life of luxury as an elite sex worker in Paris, before marrying a wealthy Egyptian businessman named Ali Kamel Fahami Bey in 1922. This week, we'll discuss how Marguerite was caught in the act of shooting her husband. We'll also talk about how she did everything in her power to convince the world that she was innocent. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. In the early morning hours of July 10th, 1923, employees of London's Savoy Hotel heard the sound of gunfire on the fourth floor. Moments later, they discovered the unconscious body of wealthy Egyptian businessman Ali Kamal Fami Bey lying on the hallway floor. Ali was bleeding heavily from bullet wounds in his temple and at the nape of his neck. His wife, a 32-year-old Frenchwoman named Marguerite Alibert, was standing over his body holding the gun. It was clear to everyone who arrived on the scene that she had shot her husband, and she made no attempt to hide it. As the hotel staff bent over the body, trying to assess the gravity of his injuries, Marguerite clung to one of the assistant managers, weeping. I lost my head. I've shot him. The manager guided her back to her suite, where she changed out of her silk evening gown, applied a fresh coat of lipstick, and waited for the police to come. An ambulance soon arrived to whisk Ali to Charing Cross Hospital. He was still alive when physicians tended to his injuries, but at 3.25 that morning, he was pronounced dead. Around the same time, a taxi dropped Marguerite Alibert off at the police station in central London. 
She was accompanied by an officer, Sergeant George Hall, as well as the Savoy Hotel physician, Dr. Edward Gordon. Marguerite spent the next few hours sitting in an inspector's office, telling her story to Dr. Gordon, whom she seemed to trust. At some point, Dr. Gordon discovered that Ollie was dead and broke the news to Marguerite. What have you found out? Marguerite, I'm so sorry. Your husband is dead. (gasps) Oh no! The physicians did the best they could, but he never regained consciousness. I didn't mean it. I swear I didn't mean it. And then when I saw him on the ground, I I thought he was just pretending to scare me. I never thought. I didn't think. Slow down, Marguerite. Sit. Have some water. Thank you. You're kind. But how did this happen? I don't know. He threatened me, and I lost my head. I was so afraid. You've been through quite an ordeal. Yes, yes, you understand. I wasn't myself. As Marguerite sat with Dr. Gordon, police gathered at the Savoy Hotel to collect evidence. The lead inspector, Alfred Gross, took possession of Marguerite's blood-stained gown. He also retrieved the empty cartridge cases from the murder weapon, as well as two of the bullets. The officers took note of the blood-stained carpet and the ricochet marks on the walls. However, their investigation of the crime scene was brief. Police allowed hotel employees to clean up the hotel hallway right away, without even taking any photographs of the scene. Perhaps the investigators didn't feel they needed to document the crime scene because they already had more than enough evidence against Marguerite Alibert. Between the eyewitnesses who caught her holding the murder weapon and her own implicating statements, her guilt seemed undeniable. Around 7 a.m. on July 10, 1923, Inspector Gross returned to the station and informed Marguerite that she was to be charged with capital murder. You should know that from here on out, anything you say may be used as evidence at trial. I understand. Have you got anything to add? I've already told the police I did it. I told them the truth. I shot him. But only because I couldn't bear it anymore. He threatened me constantly. I thought he was going to kill me. All right. Don't you want to ask me any questions? You'll have the chance to tell your story in court. Let's go. Marguerite was never interrogated for the crime. Again, it seemed as if police felt that they had all the information they needed, and Marguerite's guilt was already a given. She moved quickly from the police station to the courthouse, where that afternoon she went before a magistrate for her arraignment. By that time, the press had caught wind of the story, and they were quick to pounce on it. Marguerite had spent her whole life using her allure to mesmerize wealthy men, and she seemed to have the same effect on the journalists covering the murder. She wore a black silk dress and a monkey fur coat for her first court appearance. One report described her as a stunning figure with fascinating violet eyes. Another report noted that she was ravishingly beautiful and bedecked in huge diamonds and ropes of pearls. Western papers were quick to use the label princess when referring to Marguerite, and although she wasn't really a princess, everyone seemed happy to treat her like royalty. 
After her arraignment, Marguerite was transferred to Holloway Prison in North London, but she didn't live like the typical inmate. She stayed in the hospital wing, away from the general population. According to the Sydney Herald, she enjoyed special luxuries in prison. A maid was allowed into the prison to bring Marguerite personal possessions, clothes, and necessities each day. Marguerite had always adored her jewelry. Apparently, she didn't have to part with it, even as she awaited trial for the murder. Marguerite's wealth also bought her another, even more valuable privilege. She could hire the best attorneys available. First, she hired Freak Palmer, a man with perhaps the largest criminal practice in London. On the advice of some friends, Marguerite also hired a second attorney to be Palmer's co-chair. One of the most renowned defense attorneys in the country, Sir Edward Marshall Hall. Good afternoon, madam. I'm pleased to make your acquaintance. Monsieur Hall, I hear they call you the great defender. You have a formidable reputation. I hope you feel assured that you're in good hands. I do. I'm so glad Palmer convinced you to come aboard. He was worried you wouldn't agree. He said you weren't interested in defending capital murder cases anymore. I thought I had given it up. But you changed your mind? Have you heard of the Armstrong case? It was in the papers last year. The murder trial for that solicitor. Yes, I could have taken that case, but I didn't. The man was found guilty. He claimed innocence right to the very end, even right before he was hanged. Oh my goodness! I'm here to make sure that does not happen to you. Thank you, sir. Marguerite's lawyers were well aware of the odds stacked against their client. She had been caught red-handed, and she had unequivocally admitted her crime to the police. They had just one recourse at their disposal. They had to show that the killing was justified. In order to turn Marguerite into a sympathetic figure, they'd have to convince the world that her victim was a monster. Coming up, Marguerite reinvents herself while smearing her husband's name. Hi listeners, Carter here with a quick but special announcement. The newest Spotify original from Parcast is unlocking the mysteries of superstitions. If you've ever broken a mirror or walked under a ladder, you know the feeling. You've just doomed yourself to bad luck. But have you really been marked for misfortune? Every week on Superstitions, take a closer look at eerie, almost mystical beliefs and practices that might just have the power to change our fates. Can holding your breath while passing a cemetery save your life? Will carrying a rabbit's foot bring you luck? How can you go through life always avoiding the number 13? And why should you try? They may seem mystical or even completely illogical, but one thing is certain. You ignore them at your own risk. You can find and follow Superstitions free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. To hear more ParCast shows, search ParCast Network in Spotify's search bar and find a growing slate of thrilling new series to enjoy. And now, back to the story. Hours after killing her husband, 
32-year-old Frenchwoman Marguerite Alibert was arrested on a charge of willful murder. The case quickly became a sensation. Reporters wrote about Marguerite's life as if it were an exotic fairy tale gone wrong. She was labeled a Parisian beauty, a princess. Her victim was called the boy prince from Egypt, who had captured her heart. In some of the earliest reports on the murder, the marriage was described as a heated affair, with both sides prone to fits of passion. The papers leaned into sexist tropes when discussing the marriage. They pointed out that Marguerite was 10 years older than her husband and insinuated that she had duped Ali by lying about her age. They also noted that Ali was adored by beautiful young women everywhere. These reports suggested that Marguerite was terrified that her beauty would soon fade and that she would soon lose her husband to a younger woman. According to these newspapers, Marguerite had killed her boy prince out of jealousy. But over the next few weeks, a new slant on the story emerged. Instead of being painted as a mercurial temptress, Marguerite was turned into a more pitiful figure. Newspapers wrote less about the lavishness of her former life. They began to focus more on how this princess had lost everything she held dear. Reports dwelled on the fact that she was a prisoner in a foreign land. A woman who spoke no English, had no friends nearby, and was cut off from the social scene that had defined her life for more than a decade. Journalist Milton Bronner wrote, Marie Fahmi is rapidly becoming a mere ghost of her former self. The Daily Graphic called her a frail figure in deep mourning. Beyond reinventing Marguerite as a woeful widow, reporters also shifted their coverage of Ali. About a week before the trial, one story dominated several newspapers. It detailed a supposed magic crystal globe that Ali had gifted his wife. According to the story, Marguerite had gazed into the crystal ball shortly before the murder. There, she had seen her husband in the arms of another woman. In spreading this story, journalists seemed to relish the opportunity to highlight Ali's Middle Eastern heritage, using both implicit and explicit xenophobic tropes. Newspapers described the magic crystal as an example of the mysticism of Egypt that had entrapped the vulnerable white woman, Marguerite Alibert. These racist stories played right into the hands of Marguerite's lawyers. As Marguerite's trial approached, they took the narrative even further. The way they told it, Marguerite was a beauty who had fallen into the clutches of a foreign beast. What was their relationship like? They used to exchange names. Terms of endearment? <laughs> Not quite. It seems there was little affection to go around. Any details to share? It's a very sordid story of married life. Not fit for print, frankly. Come on, Palmer, a hint? There will be a time when the whole story comes out. Then you'll see a clear picture of an ordinary woman and the man who crushed every bit of life out of her. Is it true the prince had four wives? <laughs> I haven't heard it, but I wish he had. If he had more women to share the burden of his attention, my client might have been less aggrieved. What does that mean? You'll hear plenty about the man's perversions in due time. In interviews with reporters, her lawyer dropped salacious hints about Ali's unconventional appetites. 
Marguerite's doctor had reported that she suffered from severe hemorrhoids, and her lawyer, Freak Palmer, intimated that her condition was the result of her husband demanding violent anal sex. He told journalists that the madam's complaint was extremely painful. Her husband was the cause of it. Journalists quickly adopted the framing of Ali as both deviant and tyrannical, again making use of racist stereotypes. They suggested that the marriage was doomed because of the couple's cultural differences. She was a modern Western woman, and he, as one paper put it, came from the traditions of the harem and the veil. Marguerite didn't object to these accounts of her husband. She was happy to encourage them. She understood that her life depended on destroying Ali's reputation. But turning Ali into a villain wasn't enough. Marguerite knew that she also had to maintain the appearance of innocence. However, with her colorful past, she knew it might be difficult for the jury to see her as the pinnacle of virtue. So she used every tool at her disposal to keep the past a secret. During her years as a sex worker, she had forged a relationship with the Prince of Wales, Edward VIII. According to crime author Andrew Rose, Marguerite likely hoped that Edward, the heir to the British throne, might be able to exert his influence over the prosecutors and judge presiding over her trial. Edward was also motivated to keep the past a secret. He knew Marguerite still possessed embarrassing letters he'd sent her during their affair. She hadn't spoken about them since 1918, but with the threat of prosecution hanging over her head, Marguerite revived the subject. While in prison, she had several meetings with an aristocrat named Ernest Bald. Bald was friendly with the Duke of Westminster, who in turn was closely acquainted with Prince Edward. Author Andrew Rose has speculated that the purpose of these meetings was to negotiate the return of Edward's letters. Major Bald, (laughs) it's lovely to see you again. It's my pleasure entirely. I'm only sorry that it's in a place like this. Oh, it's not so bad. As long as it's not permanent. Keep your chin up. I'm sure you'll be rightfully acquitted. Yes, thank you. Now, I suppose you're here to discuss the matter of those pesky letters. I'm sure we'd both like the matter over and done with. Of course. But as long as I have you here, I may as well borrow your wisdom. I'm so dense about these legal proceedings. I need all the help I can get. Of course. I know that the jury will recognize the truth when they hear it from me. Only I'm worried their judgment might be clouded if those horrid lawyers keep bringing up silly rumors about my past. Yes, I understand your concern. Unless... Unless the judge decides that the past is off-limits. Yes, that's the only fair thing, don't you think? After all, my old relationships have nothing to do with this trial. There's no reason to bring up ancient history in court. I agree wholeheartedly. I'm sure many others would agree. Certain men in high places wouldn't want their names dragged into all this. Rest assured, madam. If your judge is a good one, he'll exclude irrelevant evidence. The lawyers will be forbidden from even bringing it up. You're certain of that? I know how these legal minds work. I feel very confident. Oh, wonderful. 
Now about those letters. <laughs> Bald and Marguerite had their last meeting in mid-August 1923. There are no records of their final conversation, but they evidently came to an understanding. Marguerite agreed to surrender the letters. There's little doubt that she must have extracted some kind of benefit in return. Whatever promise she extorted from Ernest Bald, it came just in time. Her trial was to begin September 10th, 1923, just two months after her husband's death. By then, Marguerite had harnessed every tool in her arsenal. She had played the role of the pitiful, battered wife. She had launched racist attacks against her late husband. She had called in old favors from powerful friends. But she didn't yet know if any of her schemes had worked. She wouldn't have to wait long for an answer. The trial began on September 10th. Marguerite pled not guilty to the crime of willful murder. The prosecutor mocked the idea of Marguerite's innocence, saying in their native French, from her own lips, it is known it was she who killed him. The first witness was Saeed Anani, Ali's secretary. Newspapers described him as a sleek and swarthy Egyptian, insinuating that he was not a trustworthy source. Marguerite's lawyer, Sir Edward Marshall Hall, hammered on the same theme during his cross-examination. Mr. Said, earlier today you put your hand on a book and swore to tell the truth. I did. What book was this? It was the Bible. It was the Christian Bible, was it not? Yes, that's right. But you yourself are not a Christian. You are a member of the Muslim faith, isn't that true? Yes, I am Muslim. And yet you put your hand on the Bible and swore on it. It was the book they provided. I didn't know Do you believe you're bound to tell the truth when you swear on the Bible? After all, it's not your book of worship. I think, I believe I am bound to tell the truth, yes. Well, if you say so. Hall focused much of his questioning on Ali's courtship with Marguerite. Early in their relationship, they had vacationed together in France. When Ali returned to Egypt, he had sent her several telegrams imploring her to come visit him. In some of these telegrams, he claimed that he was seriously ill and could only hope to recover by seeing Marguerite again. Ali was likely exaggerating for romantic effect, but in his questioning, Hall tried to convince the jury that these exaggerations weren't so innocent. He suggested that Ali had used lies and manipulations to lure Marguerite into a foreign country. Hall then began to confront the secretary on the nature of his relationship with his employer. You were very close with Ali, weren't you? We were friends. Close friends? You spent hours alone together. Uh, wasn't this the cause of many arguments between Ali and his wife? Yes. I think she didn't like that his attention was divided. You mean she was jealous of you? I don't... Not jealous the way you mean. Jealous of how close you were. So close that Ali sometimes preferred your company to hers. We... we were good friends. You had a friendship so dear it was discussed in Cairo newspapers. Gossip rags. One paper's cartoonist had a bit of fun at your expense, didn't he? I believe I have the cartoon here. This caption refers to you as the soul of Fami. They call you his soul. 
That sounds like more than mere friendship. What is this implying? It means nothing. It is just a caricature. The judge made few interjections during this line of questioning, except to make a joke about the cartoon in question. His reaction was quite different when it was time for Marguerite to take the stand. The trial was about to get much more interesting. Coming up, Marguerite's fate is decided. Now back to the story. 32-year-old Marguerite Alibert's murder trial began on September 10, 1923. After initial testimony from her dead husband's secretary, the prosecutor, Percival Clark, announced his intention to bring up Marguerite's history. The defense objected, and the trial was briefly halted. The jury was sent out of the room while the attorneys argued about the propriety of the prosecutor's questions. I plan to ask the defendant whether she has lived an immoral life. The jury has a right to hear the answer. Prosecution intends to fill the jury's minds with rumors and innuendo. The defendant can deny them if she wishes, as long as she does it under oath. Your Honor, the prosecution wants to derail this trial with ludicrous and irrelevant diversions. It's not a diversion if it reveals the defendant's true character, sir. She claims she was fooled, abused, and manipulated by a tyrant, but she is hardly a naive woman. I'm inclined to agree with the defense. What use is it to pour over this woman's history? It has no bearing on the marriage. I'd ask you to reconsider. There will be no questions about the defendant's past relationships. I've made my ruling. While there's no clear evidence of the judge's bias, it may be that he was aware of Marguerite's affair with Prince Edward, and he feared the possibility of creating a royal scandal. With Marguerite's past behavior off the table, the prosecution had to devote its entire focus on Marguerite's relationship with Ali, and the defense had already done an effective job at poisoning the jury against the dead man. All that was left was for Marguerite to fill in the sordid details about the days leading up to the shooting. On Wednesday, September 12, 1923, Marguerite took the stand. After his previous cross-examination of Saeed Anani, her attorney was careful to have her sworn in on a Quran, given her conversion to Islam. Then, Marguerite dramatically launched into her story. According to her, the abuse had begun immediately after their marriage in December of 1922. The pair fought constantly. By the time they began their vacation in London in July of 1923, both had been stretched past their breaking point. According to Marguerite, the entire trip had been a disaster, but it deteriorated even further due to the flare-up of an embarrassing medical problem, Marguerite's hemorrhoids. She was examined by the Savoy Hotel physician, Dr. Gordon, who recommended an operation to treat the problem. Marguerite testified that she wanted to travel to Paris to have the operation there, but Ali refused to allow her to go. Apparently, he was worried that it would look bad if his wife abandoned him during their vacation. It may be that Ali would have gladly paid for her to have the operation in London, but Marguerite never mentioned that in her testimony. In her version, Ali cruelly prevented her from getting necessary medical care. Ali's callous disregard for Marguerite's health and comfort was the last straw. On July 9th, 1923, Marguerite and Ali were barely on speaking terms. 
They had lunch together in the Savoy Hotel, but spent the whole time insulting one another. Their fighting became so distracting, the staff intervened to try to break the tension. How dare you! Now you've done it. The waiter is coming to shut you up again. Please, your voices? Madam, perhaps you might like to recommend a song for the orchestra to play? I don't give a damn about the orchestra! He threatened me just moments ago! Did you hear him? I did not. And yesterday he threatened to smash my head with a bottle! This is the torture I live with daily! You're ridiculous. And you're a pig! Please, lower your voices. Oh, to hell with it all! I'll be dead before tomorrow and nobody gives a damn! The couple separated for a few hours and Marguerite went shopping. When she returned, she had all her bags packed. She decided she was going to Paris with or without Ollie's approval. Ollie was furious when he came to her room and saw her preparing to leave. What's all this? Where are you going? I've bought a ticket to Paris myself, no thanks to you. I don't believe you. Why do you think I'm all packed? After tonight, we're done. I can't wait until I never have to look at you again. Do you think I relish seeing you this way? Do you think I enjoy putting up with your selfishness, your thoughtlessness? All you do is criticize. You never remember the good I do for you. Where are you going now? We have plans tonight, darling. Can't you at least remember that? Despite the bitter argument, the couple went to Daly's theater to watch The Merry Widow together. When they returned, they made an appearance in the hotel ballroom, but Marguerite refused to dance with Ali. Their fighting continued in front of the weary guests and staff. At around 1.45 a.m., Marguerite stormed upstairs to their suite. She went into her private bedroom and locked the door. She was apparently too agitated to prepare for bed, so she sat up writing letters. Shortly thereafter, she heard a knock at her door. It was Ali. Marguerite later said he was in a rage. When she asked him for traveling money for her return to Paris, he responded, I will give it to you if you earn it. In Marguerite's retelling, Ali demanded anal sex, despite her painful condition. She claimed he wouldn't let her leave for Paris unless she obeyed. But Marguerite was in no mood to submit. Stay away from me, you monster! The pair began to brawl, hitting and scratching one another. Marguerite said that Ali twisted her arm and spat in her face. <laughs> the loud argument attracted the attention of the night porter, John Beatty, who tried to calm them down. Mr. and Mrs. Fahami, several guests have complained about the noise. Look at this scratch on my face. Look what she's done to me. Oh, shut up. You gave as good as you got. If you refuse to quiet down, I'll have to get the manager. Call him then. I want to see the manager. Maybe he can talk some sense into this woman. As you wish. The porter asked them to return to their room. Then he went to fetch the night manager. As he walked away, turning a corner and moving out of sight, he heard Ali whistling. Ali was calling back Marguerite's little dog, who had playfully dashed into the hallway. As Ali's attention was on the dog, Marguerite ran back into the hotel suite. She later said, 
I was very frightened and felt weak. She spotted the gun she kept by her bedside, the 25 caliber semi-automatic baby browning pistol. She picked up the weapon. Marguerite claimed that Ali returned to the room in a fury, that he threatened to kill her, that he grabbed her around the throat and started to throttle her. Marguerite raised the gun. She later testified she didn't believe it was loaded. She said she only intended to scare him off when she pulled the trigger, shooting him three times. Marguerite's testimony is hard to square with the hotel porter's version of events. According to John Beatty, hardly a minute passed between the time Ali whistled for the dog and the moment he heard the sound of gunfire. There wasn't much time for Ali to attack his wife in the interval. Nevertheless, the jury listened to Marguerite's testimony in rapt silence. The trial concluded in less than a week. On Friday, September 24, 1923, the jury returned with a verdict of not guilty. Marguerite left the courtroom a free woman. It may have been Marguerite's good luck that she escaped conviction. She possibly benefited from the English jury's bias against her Egyptian husband. Or it may be that she was helped by a biased judge who was part of a coordinated effort to tamp down any hint of a royal scandal. Whatever the case, Marguerite left London and returned to Paris. She, as always, focused her energy on turning her ordeal into a profitable opportunity. She even tried to sue Ali's relatives for a share of his fortune, but her efforts were unsuccessful. Marguerite returned to the life she'd lived before meeting Ali. Despite everything, she was still an expert at seducing wealthy benefactors, convincing them to support her extravagant lifestyle. She continued to do so until the age of 70 when she announced that she was done taking lovers. She intended to live out the rest of her life alone. Marguerite Alibert lived the remainder of her life comfortably in an elegant apartment just across from the Ritz Hotel in Paris. She died at the age of 80 on January 2nd, 1971. Thanks again for tuning into Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode. For more information on the case, we found the book The Woman Before Wallace, Prince Edward, The Parisian Courtesan, and The Perfect Murder by Andrew Rose, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Solved Murders True Crime Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Solved Murders was written by Christina Pamies with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Bill Butts, Tiana Camacho, Joe Hernandez, Eddie Lee, and Rebecca Thomas. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Remember to follow Superstitions for new episodes featuring our most unusual beliefs. Are they side effects of ancient folklore or truly the masters of our fates? 
look closely, and examine the writings on the wall. Superstitions airs every Wednesday free on Spotify.